0: Hello and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives, and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, the treasurer for the committee, and today I'm thrilled to be introducing the inspiring Branavan Nanalingam, speaking about his book, Sprigs. The Ockham judges praise Sprigs as an unflinching novel which forces us to reckon with uncomfortable truths about power and privilege in Aotearoa. The book comes with trigger warnings, but also nuanced storytelling and some comic relief. Branovan discusses the book and the issues around masculinity it puts in the spotlight. The conversation was recorded at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival an annual weekend of wonderful writers and curious audiences. We're currently working on plans for this year's festival and we're excited to share more details with you very soon. For now, please enjoy Branavan Nanalingam speaking to Tessa Nicholson.
1: Okay, well, order. Welcome to Melbourne Book Festival Twenty Twenty One. My name is Tessa Nicholson. I'm the MC for this session with Branavan. Um, also, like to thanks to our sponsors for this um, session. I know it's quite early, and um, some of us had more than we should have last night, so we're probably on the elderflower. But beautiful Astrolab wines. Um, so thank you very much to Astrolab wines for um, sponsoring the session. So now I want to welcome Branavan Nayanalilnigam, and he's the author of. Six books in nine years, which is quite remarkable because he's also a lawyer and a father of two young girls. He was longlisted for the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards back in 2017 for A Briefcase, Two Pies and a Penthouse. And when I saw that title, I was thinking Penthouse Building, but no, it was the other sort of penthouse. Um, he was also shortlisted for the awards in 2017 for Sodden Downstream, and again, he was shortlisted this year for Spriggs. A hell of a book, Branagh "Sprigs" Spriggs. Um, it blew me away. Were you a bit disappointed you didn't win the Yockham this year? Because if ever a book should have, I think that's the one. Uh, um, I,
2: I try not to take that stuff too seriously. It, it was just nice being recognised and being part of the, the, the conversation, I guess. And, yeah. um, they're, they're always arbitrary, and the judges, I think, have to kind of make a call at the, at the last minute. And I think
1: we can change that by buying the book and telling everybody how fantastic (laughs) it is. And I have to say that it was a book that I read in a day. And when I got off, when I finished it, I rang everybody I knew and said, "If you buy a book this year, buy Spriggs." And I, I'm not, sort of, sort of pandering to you, but it, to me is the book of the last three years for me that I've read. So congratulations on it. It's a book though that comes with a warning and I think that that is something that people pick it up and see the warning that you know, create, you know there is violence involved and there's Islamophobia and homophobia and suicide and stuff and they think, don't want to go there, put it down. Why did you put a warning in the intro for the book?
2: Yeah, I, um, one of the things I'm conscious of as, as a writer or as an artist in general is that when you make art, it's, you're basically um, kind of getting the audience member to think in your, through your eyes. So there's a kind of manipulative aspect to being an artist. And I figure if I'm going to be manipulative, then I want people to be fully aware of what I'm doing um, so they can make a choice as to whether they want to read it or not. Um, it's, it's weird because it's been, uh, there's been a lot of attention on that content Ooh. warning. Um, and to me, it, I thought about going to video stores where you just see the kind of warning stickers and uh, Mm. it just seemed to be exactly kind of like that. Never stopped me as a teenager watching films when it had an R18 contains violence type thing, but I was kind of aware that this is what I was in for. Um, And I kind of thought that's how I would approach the book. The subject matter is heavy and can be triggering for some people, so I just wanted to give people a heads up so they can choose whether they wanted to read it or not. And if if it's absolutely meaningless and you weren't going to be offended or affected, then you can treat it like the ISBN page and ignore it.
1: You actually put one also in Sodden Downstream, you know, in yep. the entrance to that, and I, and I think that was the first time I'd ever seen a warning in a book. But you say we see it in TV yep. and movies and videos all the time, so, yep. well, when we had videos, we showing my age here, aren't I? Um, so it's, it's written in four distinct sections, so it begins with a college rugby final, um, and then it moves on to the after party, and then the third section delves into the aftermath of what's happened at that after party, and then the fourth section gives a voice to the victim the victim of, of, of a gang rape. Um, so let's take a look, separate those f- four sections out. The game. We'll start with that. And so it's a private schools, college, rugby, first 15 final. Um, and I know you've never played rugby because your cousin or your, your mother's cousin died of a rugby um, in a rugby incident in Sri Lanka. Um, you watch a lot of rugby, but how much did you have to watch to get that commentary going? Because it was like having Keith Quinn whispering <laughs> in my ear while I was reading it.
2: Well, I guess that's my... Um relationship with rugby has been through hearing it through commentators and hearing uh, and reading about it and um, watching it uh, like that and I spent a lot of time in year 13 on the sideline watching our school first 15, Um, a lot of my friends were in the first 15 Um, and so I would just wander down and hang out with my mates and Mm. uh, we would watch other mates play so that whole kind of scene was not foreign to me um, growing up Uh, and in Wellington as in most kind of places the school, college sports was a big thing um, I played cricket and football to a relatively high standard too, so I was kind of used to those sorts of spaces as well um, mm. in, in high school. So I kind of also imagined the sports that I played and just how that might play out, and I just shifted that to rugby. because
1: yeah, um, it really is. I mean, I'm, I'm quite a rugby f- um, fan, and it was really like listening to somebody give a commentary on a rugby match and I was very impressed that as a person who's never played or reffed, yep. you actually were able to get that out there.
2: <laughs> oh great I mean I was, um, I mean I, I just relied on the fact that I had watched a lot and I hope mm. that I had got it right um, but yeah I I guess like any um, sportsman teenager, I spent a lot of time watching rugby, so it, it didn't feel too hard to to, to, to do. Yeah.
1: So then we go to the, the second section, which is the party, and that's after the, the rugby final. It's that night. It's out on a farm, um, you know, out of town. And it's, it, you know, it really took me back to my teenage years. Those, those, the big parties that you go to that, you don't, that your mum and dad actually don't know you're at. Um, you know, the alcohol, the boys, the girls, the interactions and things. But it's, you know... It's a real teenage nightmare in some ways for parents. Um, did you, is that from your memory of attending parties or did you talk to people going to parties? Yeah, so that's
2: definitely from uh, a memory. And so this is something that I actually did, um, that I kind of drew on from a personal experience for writing that second part. Um, so one of my closest friends um, ho- often hosted those parties. He lived out um, uh, in a lifestyle block uh, and would host parties which would, up, up to 500 people would show up... Um, uh, Onto the 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 woolshed, um, yeah. and his dad would be manning the gates. And he he was the kind of guy that everyone was mates with. So somehow the news would spread across the entire Wellington region that he was having the party. So uh, it was also easy for me to go because I was um, good mates with him. So I would just be telling my parents, "I'm going to stay at Dave's." Uh, and they so didn't know there was a party. They didn't know on. how big yeah. the party was going to be. Um, but the first party that he hosted was the party that I that I was kind of drawing on in particular. Um, and I was 15. And I, pretty similar to to prayer, hadn't drunk much. I had before. I um, had been given a six pack, uh, bought by a mate's dad, and combed out at the party. And boys at the party, who some of them who later became my mates, um, ended up peeing on me, pouring drinks on me, spitting on me, just because I was this kind of prone target for them. Um, and so I was kind of. Um, I mean that obviously stuck with me, I didn't drink for two years after that, it, it kind of was one of those things where, because I wasn't a bullied kid it was just kind of one of those things where I was like well, what happened, why did that happen and it was purely because they were like here's the target, we can do something to him um, and that, has, that was a pretty formative experience and I kind of um, used that as the kind of basis for the way guys can just kind of shift when they're in this kind of situation where they see this um see someone they can victimize or see someone they can kind of do something to um and it can just happen like that did they have social media you, was there any it was pre-social media so i was how lucky were you very lucky yeah yeah, yeah. uh so uh, i was 15 so it was late 90s it was um yeah it was the drinking age had um was still when, when it was 21 it was still kind of um or 20 it was kind of one of those kind of where everything was about to shift from a mm. kind of technology and social kind of, um, more as kind of perspective, but I was, yeah, caught up in it and um, had that kind of pretty traumatic experience. Yeah. Um, but then also, two years later, I mean, I'm the same age as the kids at Taradale, mm. um, uh, and so I was kind of, you know, these kind of narratives become quite a pretty integral part of growing up, and so I, I, I definitely remembered... Um, that nature of teenage parties. Mm. Uh, And then, because I was sober for the next two years, I was the one sober driving to all these parties, and so I'd be kind of witnessing and was able to remember a lot from those parties and the way people interacted, Mm. Um, and I think that definitely fed into part two.
1: The next section is the meeting, which is actually after the after-party, and it becomes apparent that there was a video of the victim being raped in a combed-out state. And so the, the school... St. Luke's finds kind of finds out about it, but sort of in a backwards place. I found this was a um, was a section that was quite horrifying because within it, it's people trying to protect their children's butts um, and the school's reputation, um, and it was actually a pretty horrific sort of um, statement on on society, really. Yeah, I was. Um, I think it came out of a place of
2: anger, having seen so many incidences in recent times where um, awful behaviour had been kind of covered up or hushed up, and the way institutions circled the wagons and tried to protect themselves rather than think about the victim or think about the kind of consequences of or how they might have contributed to um, to some of these situations. And um, you know, you can name kind of countless examples in New Zealand, let alone globally, uh, mm. of institutions which it's almost like they get caught out from the cover-up rather than actually getting called out for, for the incident itself. And so that's what I really focused on in, in part three. I was really kind of angry and sc- scathing in my, to myself about how this plays out time and time again. And, and so part three, I, I was really interested in creating pace and creating um, this sense of chaos um, through that part um, just to kind of show how fast-moving it is but also how... Um, much of a mess the situation can be and how much it suppresses a victim's voice.
1: It's amazing because you've got very powerful people who are the board chairman and, and members of the board and, and the lawyers and all of a sudden they realise that their children might have been involved and they start employing QCs, but I think the worst indictment is that they try to blame it on the the student, the brown-skinned student, who is on a scholarship for a rugby. Can we blame it on him? Can we give it to him because you know, he comes from over there and he's not really all that important? It's horrible. Yeah. Did, did you ever see that happen? Um,
2: I didn't necessarily see it happen in my, kind of, in my time at school. I, in some respects, I felt a little bit like Richie at my school. So I went to a, um, a private school, but I grew up with unemployed parents, and I grew up in nine. Uh, so I grew up in the part of Wellington. So my social situation was kind of similar to Sonnen downstream, but I went to a school like Ooh. Spriggs. And I always felt slightly un well, I felt, always felt uneasy about the disparity in class and disparity in terms of if I made a mistake that I could easily be, um, be cut. Uh, and that something that you kind of internalise a little bit, which is, yeah, despite how, how well you might do at this school, you kind of also then kind of worry that how that might play out if you, um, if you stuff up. Or, mm. or can you afford to make a mistake? Because I think one of the things that I was interested in this book is that Clearly, people are making mistakes, but who gets to get away with a mistake and who doesn't get to get away with a mistake? That's something that I was particularly interested in.
1: Section four is when you finally give Priya, the victim, a voice. And she hasn't really... Well, she appears in the very first... She's at the game and she's at the party, but it's after the event. Um, and you give her the voice, and it's like there's, there's a terrible, um, terrible sort of setting there that where she... Um, this is how it opens, section four, and this is from Priya, the 15-year-old victim. The first sentence, it hurt, it hurt, it hurt. For a sec, I'd forgotten what had happened, where I was. Like, I woke up in that bed and I felt the pain down there and in my head, and I had no idea what had happened. I mean, I just wanted to cry when I read that. that was the f- Up until then, I'd laughed out loud a lot, and then I felt um, horrendously guilty when I read that sentence because this had all led up. Why did you wait till the end to give her a voice?
2: I was, I was very deliberate with the structure in creating a sense of object versus subject. And the way um, sexual violence victims get treated in kind of the media or in the justice system is that everyone talks for them or talks about them. Um, mm. No one actually gives them necessary a voice until... And when they do, it's not on their terms. It's entirely on the, the terms of the justice system. You have to express it in a particular setting and in accordance with particular rules and so that you get cross-examined and all that sort of stuff or even before that with the police um, or if the media is writing a story then it's someone else's kind of narrative kind of telling your narrative in that in that space so I wanted to set that up in the structure so the reason why part three and part four play out side by side is, so in effect I, I've written a three act novel but with two third acts uh, and in the, the with the the meeting, the part three, I wanted to create a sense of her being an object, her being someone who is kind of doomed by the way that the power encircling the wagons and the way everyone has kind of set up the scene for her Mm. means that whenever she gets a voice, it's going to be extremely difficult. Uh, So then by the time in part four, when she had the voice, you've kind of got a sense, this crushing sense of that, there's a kind of powerlessness about it. But also on the other hand, I also wanted to give her a voice because I think that is also... Uh, and if that's one thing that Trina Burke, in particular, from with kind of the conversations around me too, is that having a voice and saying this has happened to me is extremely powerful, and telling your own story uh, is extremely powerful. So I wanted to make sure that the book, a, gave her that voice, uh, and also showed how important it could be, and, and finished with that voice.
1: Did you write them in order, the, the four sections? I actually wrote.
2: I, I usually write in order. Um, but I was in Toronto for two weeks in 2018, and I knew that I wouldn't get a period, <laughs> a, a period of just being able to write uh, in one go. So I um, wrote part four when I was in Toronto. Um, just went flat, uh, just flat at it, mm. and, and, and wrote part four in that in that space.
1: So you did that before you'd finished the other
2: sections. Before I finished part three. So I mean, they had the narrative all yeah. planned out, um, and I'd written part one and most of part two. I think by that point. Um, but I just went for part four um, also helped kind of structure the way part three and the parallel narratives would play out but Mm. I was really keen to make sure that the voice was consistent and being able to write in one go um, helped with that consistency of voice I think.
1: You yourself were sexually abused in your 20s and when you were in Toronto you wrote this and Witte Maira was there as well now he was also sexually abused as as a young much younger Um, and you have said that he was a very great help for you when you were writing that section? In, in what way?
2: Um, I actually didn't realise about... I, I read his memoir uh, after I'd written part four, so I hadn't realised what had happened to Whittier until afterwards, but then had that real sense of camaraderie once, once I read it. Um, but he was just there, and because um, I was in a weird headspace when you're writing that part, oh. you're, uh, it was quite a heavy period, and something had also happened at home, which I was quite um, devastating, and also when I was there, my uncle thought he was having a heart attack, so that heart attack scene in part two with the, the dad at Dead the gate the, yeah. was literally what my un- had happened to my uncle when oh, i oh. just arrived there, so uh, um, it was all kind of weird stuff happening, uh, and what he just kind of, was just really kind of helpful, just kind of just, just talk stuff through, just kind of said, just keep going, um, just kind of, kind of good motivational speaker, He's just a lovely guy, uh, yeah. and, uh, but also the, Tina Makareti and um, Kirsten McDougall were there too,
1: and they would, we just had such great camaraderie, Uh, And you've said that was the section that needed the least edits. Was it because you actually had full-on time to do it, or was it because you knew exactly where you were going with it? Um, I think there's a real tension when you... Because I think the first three
2: sections, I did about 50 edits. I edited and edited and edited. (laughs) Um, But the final section, I probably did two or three. Um, And the second and third was mostly for continuity and making sure that uh, I wasn't doing anything from a narrative perspective, which jarred with part three. Um, I I think there's a real challenge when you do a first draft because the first draft has an energy which you'll never be able to get when you re-edit. It Uh, it has a kind of um, emotional quality that um, needs editing most of the time, but I wanted something raw and something difficult and something kind of from a a voice that felt felt messy. And for me, keeping it um,
1: unedited largely was kind of crucial for that. Um, while the setting is a private school St Luke's, could this and it's the first 15 um, after party, could this have been anywhere in New Zealand, could it have been any sports team in New Zealand, could it have been you know, like cricket or basketball or rowing I, I, Yeah, it
2: didn't have to be sport either I think it could be any institution where there's power where there's, mm-hmm. um, where people have an ability to control the narrative or pr- um, protect their own reputations or circle the wagons I, I, I definitely was thinking much broader. I mean rugby was I think in some respects an easy target because people are aware of the kind of toxic aspects of rugby culture but, um, or some of the toxic aspects of, of rugby culture but um, I was thinking much broader in that sense. I, I also wrote rugby because I wanted to write sport and I wanted to write a scene which would have people all coming together at one, in one way mm. and so rugby seemed like an easy way to do that for, for 15 to 18 year olds um, but I don't think at all that um, this is confined to sport.
1: The whole thing about rugby there's this lovely um, part in in section three where the the principal gets up and, and addresses, and the first fifteen have lost their game on, um, but you know they nearly won, and he's so proud, and he does his speech and thanks the first 15 and there's a harker for them and then he starts to walk away from the microphone and he comes back because he's forgotten something and this is what this is what he says oh sean came second in the national secondary school short story competition a remarkable achievement now while our literary heroes may never challenge the glory and respect given to our first 15 we still need role models to inspire us so thank you sean did you just so telling. It was like the, uh, the literary and the artistic is, you know, there, but the first 15 who lost, they were given all of
2: the pride I, and I, glory. I did actually steal that quote from, um, from a former prime minister um, who, <laughs> <laughs> who said that about our writers. So um. Really?
1: Yep. That was John Key? That was John Key, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> right, well... <laughs> The next section is male toxicity, so I wish I don't know whether we should go on to that. Um, no, so there's something, though, too, that I... I'm blown away by that one. Um, um, one of the things that I've found in interviews is that a lot of your interviewers and reviewers have talked about this phrase, male toxicity, um, and it keeps coming up. I know that you're not particularly happy with that phrase yourself, are you? I,
2: I, I think... I, I don't want it to give the sense that there is one way of being a man or that toxic masculinity is the sole way that men exist in New Zealand. And I think sometimes it can be unhelpful in the sense that people, particularly if you're a man, that you kind of go, well, therefore, this is, the only, this is, what, they, this is what people assume me to be and this is the only way I can be. Mm. Uh, and I think it can be slightly unhelpful from that perspective, but I think there are dominant cultures and dominant ways in which men are told to behave which are certainly toxic and uh, which kind of create these... Um, awful situations um, in which both men and women are are affected. Uh, So
1: as parents of of boys, what can we do to to change that going forward?
2: I think it's there's a whole variety of factors, but also kind of not buying into some of those stereotypes and the the ideas of being the hard man who doesn't show emotion or um, refuses to kind of um, understand other viewpoints and and difference and and, and all that sort of stuff. I think... um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's interesting, because I remember how much as a teenager I was influenced by, by some of those discourses and how, and how I bought into a lot of those um, things. Like, it, when I was playing sport, I remember I broke a finger and I kept playing, kept playing cricket um, and broke my nose and kept playing cricket. And those kind of ideas of you just... You still, keep, um, you still keep going, you don't show any pain, don't show any weakness, and how damaging that can be for, mm. um, for, for men who don't quite... Um, who need to kind of be able to show their wings mm. in order to get help in order to um, uh, kind of change things in, in their life? Um, and, and I think that was that's the kind of stuff that needs to be kind of focused on for um, in, in some of the, the d- discourses. And also just in a broader sense, like uh, I mean, the in the book there's a pretty horrendous um, sex ed class. That is word for word our sex ed class when I was thirteen. Are you kidding me. Yeah. Oh. So, there was nothing about consent, nothing about um, uh, gender or uh, sexual diversity, nothing at all about um, uh, kind of relationships or uh, contraception or, or anything. It was simply the bare facts in a very specific Targeted way in order to tick off a, bo- uh, tick a box.
1: Is this sort of the, the whole male toxicity or the way that men should be tough and strong and, you know, like Colin Meads play with a broken arm and, you know, lift a, a fencing post over your shoulder? Is that sort of just New Zealand or in Australia? Is it an Australasian thing or is it.
2: No, I don't, I don't think it is at all. I, I think, um, speaking of Sri Lankan male, I think it's mm. also there in like Tamil culture. Uh, like, the, 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 it's a very patriarchal culture and. Uh, and the way kind of men operate there and again a similar no show no weakness um, be this kind of provider man who kind of just gets things done
1: mm.
2: so the same things happen there it's certainly not a New Zealand uh, only thing and, mm. and um, I think part of the things in the book I was trying to show just how
1: it seeps into kind of almost all the men in the in the book one way or another. another. Your father in law Aldo died just while you were writing this book, and you've given you know a very lovely acknowledgement to him. And and you talk about the fact that he showed you how to be a better man. You know there are ways to be a much better man. In what, what way? Um, I think he he never bought into a lot of
2: these kind of uh, narratives. So he he was Italian, um, but moved when he was fifteen to Australia. So it was kind of a really awful age to move to a new country, and it was post World War two so a lot of kind of antagonism and mm. he got called a whole bunch of names and he also was the eldest of five brothers so he was and the, the father wasn 't there, so he had to kind of do a lot of the um, the kind of be the father figure and so he kind of grew up a lot earlier than um, uh, than a lot of other fifteen year olds would uh, and he was a chef and he kind of was someone who'd never really kind of um, I, I never got that sense of being this kind of yeah we need to do things this way. He was much more open and much more kind of willing to listen and much more um, interested uh, in people and in the world. A- mm. And um, I, I thought that was kind of a great model for um, for, for for men to be able to behave. Mm.
1: I'm quite fascinated by reading the book because in the section, the last section, which is Priya's sort of story. Um, We've talked about the male toxicity, but what has never been brought up in any of the interviews I've ever seen with you is the female toxicity because she is the victim, and yet her peers are sharing a video of her being raped and are writing horrible words on a school book. She's getting unbelievable messages on social media from her female peers who she thought were her friends, and it's not something we talk about a lot. There is actually female toxicity out there as well. Yeah, I mean, people collude with power
2: structures, uh, and people who uh, don't necessarily benefit from those power structures also collude. And um, I, I kind of wanted to make sure that I don't let the kind of let power off the hook. In some mm. respects, I, I was interested in power relations and the way people interact, and how that kind of transposes itself into relationships and interactions all the time, um, and it doesn't even matter if you benefit from it, people buy into it, um, and I kind of wanted to sh- make sure that was kind of clear, but also, in some respects, there, there's, there are the seeds of solidarity in part three as mm. well. There's um, some of the girls in the class kind of rise up and kind, of, uh, sh- kind of help her out, and I, I also wanted to pay tribute to that um, and kind of show that there are other ways that you can help someone out without necessarily... Um, in some respects, it can be damaging. You can co-opt a narrative, but also you can also do some do some help.
1: I was um, interested that you you did not glorify the rape. There's no um, there's no reading into it. It's it's an illusion. Was that deliberate? Because there's yeah. it's no sort of gratification. It's it's nice. I was pleased not to have to read that.
2: Yeah, I was it was a definite deliberate choice right from the outset that I would not depict the rape. Um, one, I think. Um, it's such a common thing, particularly amongst male film directors and I think writers, to kind of just throw in a gratuitous rape oh. scene and then say, the, the inhumanity of man, and kind of leave it at that. Um, to me, it serves no narrative purpose, uh, and so it serves no narrative point. Um, and also, I wasn't sure how you could capture it in language in a way that does justice, and the moment that you start capturing it in language, then you start aestheticising it, and you start kind of um, creating shifting it away from the true horror and the violence of it and I didn't want to go anywhere mm. near it I didn't feel it was necessary uh, and I also thought that depicting the consequences was going to be brutal enough for a, a reader I, I didn't need to depict
1: the violence itself I appreciated that the impact of social media was huge in this because the, um, the situation is videoed by two guys at the after party and then it's shared and once it's shared once well, it's, it's gone, it's got a life of its own um, how horrified should we be about social media? Um, yeah, it, it's, it means there's a longer tale, I guess. I mean, I think
2: this stuff has been happening pre and post social media. I don't think social media is the cause, um, but I think social media creates a tale of some of this awful horror in the sense that victims are re-victimised and it's constantly being, being shared in, in, that, in that way. And I think what has come out of Christchurch Girls um, mm. Has been very clear uh, in terms of the way that's kind of played out for, um, for a lot of victims. And Roastbusters is another example. Um, I mean, these, yeah. these kind of um, social media amplifies some of the toxic behaviour. I don't think it necessarily creates it or does anything differently. It just can make the consequences um, uh, worse.
1: I just feel sorry for the peer pressure. I mean, peer pressure at that age, you know, 15 to you know, a teenager, is, is hard enough. Yep. But then when you've got social media and people who can from the, the, the anonymity of the keyboard or their phone, send yep. you messages. Um, must be terrifying. I mean, you've, you've got two young daughters. You know, they're, they're young at this stage, but does it worry you?
2: It does, yeah, and I think also, because I rem- remember what I was like as a teenager and how um, naive and uh, just unaware of things, or also you kind of do stuff you don't realise the consequences or you, you don't know how long a tale it would have and... Um, Sort of I and mean, I was lucky that I was just before um, mm. before uh, social media, so for example, that incident when I was 15 if that had happened in the social media time, I suspect it would have been far more devastating
1: to you personally wouldn't it yeah. Uh, yeah
2: and it may still be in the public sphere kind of thing yeah. Um, whereas yeah for, for for my daughter's age I mean I have no idea what it's going to be like in 10 mm. fifteen years time uh, and it's slightly terrifying um, but I think it's also trying to make sure that uh, conversations and um, these sort of, these sorts of dialogue kind of happen in order mm. to um, kind of shift things a bit, but yeah, it, it is something that
1: I'm glad you covered yeah. it in the book because I think for people who didn't li- live through the social media era, we don't realise just how devastating it can be, and and a lot of young people must actually be reading that stuff on their phones or on their, you know on Twitter or whatever, and parents are unaware of it. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah, and it's also not just teenagers well. I mean, I know Mm. um, plenty of people who, um, you know, like Gamergate was this kind of notorious example of um, women journalists just getting horrendous series of kind of death threats and rape threats and violence um, thrown at them uh, from anonymous sources. And like anyone who kind of sticks their head above a parapet if they're from a uh, minority in a sense of power gets gets a lot of this kind of hate. And I I think um, that anonymity and that way that messages can be um, disseminated I think is is definitely something that needs to be kind of considered and obviously from a hate speech perspective that's also something that's formed mm.
1: part of the, the, the conversation. Devastating humour I mean as I said earlier I laughed out loud through those first three sections and then felt horrendously guilty when I got to section four but you have got a great wit. How important was it to put humour into a book like this?
2: Yeah I, I mean I have written six novels and I think all of my books have humour in them um, mm. I started writing uh, writing through humour um, back in university so is not something I'm necessarily scared of um, I don't like stand-up comedy because I don't I, I hate the idea of the immediacy so I hide in a novel whereas you can um, mm. uh, <laughs> if someone doesn't laugh then I won't know um, <laughs> yeah. kind of thing so is um, very important for me because I think being a political writer, it means that you can kind of sugarcoat the the politics a little bit, or people because you're laughing, you can sometimes forget that you're also being lectured to. Yeah. Whereas if it wasn't funny, then
1: people are like, oh, it's very heavy handed. Um, I think that's the the classic is um, you know a, a briefcase, two pies, and, and a penthouse. I mean, that's just hilarious. It's kind of like an Evelyn Waugh vile bodies book. You know, there's got that devastating humour when you're talking about quite a serious issue.
2: Yeah, and I think one of the things that I also really love about humour is that it you can use it to create pace and, or stop the narrative or you can slow down pace. Because uh, one of the things, that the, the way a joke works is that it's its own set piece um, and you can kind of get caught in that moment and then you forget that the narrative's happened. Um, and so I, I, I use humour specifically in Spriggs as well to kind of help create pace and kind of heighten the ridiculousness of the behaviour um, because you're kind of laughing at the joke hopefully laugh at the joke, um, and then, then you kind of forget that the narrative's kind of shifted. Uh, and one of the things I was particularly keen with Spriggs was not to do set-piece humour, more kind of humour that kind of um, carried through. Chaotic
1: humour. Chaotic humour, because yeah. I think yeah.
2: Briefcase had a bit more of a scene, a humorous scene followed by humorous scene, whereas Spriggs was meant to be a little bit more, um, kind of a bit more like, um, I was thinking in my head, like The Death of Stalin or um, the Ionucci kind of stuff. That mm. was what I was... Um, the, the, the thick of it. That was, that was the kind of humour I was thinking of.
1: You have a really interesting process for writing, and, and I'm intrigued with it, we'll come to that in a minute, but with Spriggs, you've got almost a hundred characters in that book. How did you keep them all separate in your mind so that you didn't lose their individual um, traits without them all melding in together?
2: It was, um, it was a challenge. Um, yeah. I had, cause I usually plot my characters pretty in-depth in my head before I start and I, I write down some notes so that they are a fully formed character before I, before I write um, and I give them back stories which you don't end up often seeing in the book because I wanted to make sure that in my head they were a 3D character even if in the book they show up for like a, a scene or, mm. a, or a paragraph. Mm. Um, so I, with, with Spriggs I kind of really thought hard about the characters and then what I do when I write dialogue is I imagine them talking like a mate. So I'll pick a friend and, I, and then I'll kind of imagine how they talk and then put the words of the character, even though the, ca- the character is not my friend, mm. um, or not based on my friend, but I just kind of imagine their, their vocal mannerisms and the way they talk, and put that in, in the book. So I kind of differentiate that way as well. A hundred times? <laughs>
1: it seems like it a massive be. task. Yep.
2: Um, I think for this book, I, one, one of the things I read, the reason why I have so many characters in this book is I wanted to talk about masculinity as a structure and talk about power as a structure, and I thought the best way to talk about structure is to have... To show a structure and to show the kind of top to bottom in terms of people who have power in the system show as many people as I possibly can to show just how pervasive um, uh, some of these kind of toxic um, narratives are uh, and so I, I felt like I had to do that as part of some of the, the, the things I was doing in the book uh, and so that meant I had to kind of as, as, an, as an exercise do it that way whereas um, with Sodom Downstream for example I only had one main character Uh, in my next book that I'm working on I have three characters Um, oh that must be a joy it's (laughs) it's much easier yeah Um, so that kind of helps whereas um, with Spriggs it was necessary for Mm. for the kind of themes I was trying to write but it was also um,
1: a bit of a challenge but so you're not a formulaic writer in the sense that you don't sort of and you know obviously difficult when you 're a lawyer and you 're a father of, of young children, but you you don't set yourself a task I have to write five hundred words or a thousand words, but you also use music, so you have a theme that you then becomes like a Pavlov dog yep. um, sort of scenario. so can you explain that
2: so I, I have limited time to write, so I am uh, a full time lawyer and I do have young, two young kids so um, when i i don't some writers will talk about oh you need to write a thousand words a day and you sit down in the morning and you start and then once you finish a thousand words then you get on with the rest of your day. I I don't have that luxury or capability so what I do is I um, will find time whenever I find time and I will write wherever I can Um, but the one thing I do to get myself in a writing space is I listen to the the same song over and over again Um, so that when I hear that song um, it puts me straight into this is my writing mode. Um, So it means I would listen to a song So if I was writing for an hour, I'd put it on repeat for 15 times and just write to that song. Do you ever listen to it after the book's finished? Um, It's (laughs) funny. When I listen to it sometimes afterwards, then I have this... Urge to get onto the computer. A little bit. um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to ruin a song because there's so many great songs out there in the world that uh, if there's a few songs (laughs) tied to a book, then then fine. Um, But uh, with part three, I was listening to the one song over and over again, so I'd probably listen to it about... 2,000 times?
1: Oh my god. Oh my god, I'd be throwing it out the window by then. <laughs> okay. So, do you have one song for the entire book, or did you have, like in this one, you said you had a song for um, part three? Three part, Yeah. So, and were they mood songs? Not always, yeah.
2: Uh, um, so, for part three, it was, so for, I, could, I could say the songs. Part one was a kind of indie track, which just didn't really kind of have anything really at all to do with the book. Part two was the Dua Lipa song, which I thought would be kind of in line with the party vibe. And then part three was This Year's Girl by Elvis Costello. Uh, and that, to me, had a thematic link to what I was writing about. Mm. This kind of, um, and then the kind of energy that um, is in the song, I thought also would work. There's a sneering aspect to the, to, yes, yeah. to, to the song, which I also kind of um, wanted to keep, which kind of helped with the, with the tone. Um, but there's, there's never really well, what any... about the last section, which was so... That was silence, actually. I wrote that without anything. You wrote anything. That in silence?
1: Yeah. Why?
2: Um, I was in Canada, so my wife... I didn't want to pay for the Wi-Fi. Oh, sorry, <laughs> if, I, if I didn't have Wi-Fi, I didn't want to, didn't so want to pay for um, <laughs> But uh, I think also just kind of making sure I captured the voice yeah. perfectly. I didn't want someone else's voice, so... Yeah, you could um, have
1: lost it with the music, do you think? P- potentially, yeah. Yeah. Um, your lawyer. How much... Does Having been a lawyer, you're a practising lawyer, how much does that help with your writing? I think, funnily enough, a lot. Um, mm. And I think people go, oh,
2: well, you're a lawyer, surely it must be hard to balance. And it can be from a time perspective. Um, and one thing I do is I don't beat myself up if I don't write one day. Like if I, um, all for a week or two weeks, um, then I can just go, oh, fine, I can just do it another day. Um, but one thing being a writer does is that you play with tone every day, um, and you can either be aggressive in communications or you can be very kind of mellow or nuanced, depending on what you're trying to do. And you always are changing your, um, your writing style for your particular, client, um, particular client's needs. And then on top of that, you deal with arbitrary deadlines all the time. Um, you kind of say, I'm going to get this to you by Friday. And you're like, there's no reason for me to have said that. Um, <laughs> but then you then have to write something. And it also helps, it means you can't be a perfectionist. Um, because you have to write something that's good. Um, No client wants to pay for perfection. They want something that's right, and they want something they can understand. Um, The rest... I mean, some people will be perfectionists regardless, but it also does kind of teach you how to just at least get something down on paper rather than necessarily
1: um, uh, agonising over getting it perfect the first time. But a logical thought process. From being a lawyer, you have to be very logical with what you're doing. And I'm amazed at how many of New Zealand authors are... Lawyers, or have been. Lawyers. Yes,
2: I, I think also. I mean, I went to law school because I liked English and history at school, uh, and the teachers just said, "Oh, well, you should be, you should do law." That, that's kind yeah. of, um, and I think a lot of lawyers get told that mm-hmm. from teachers. Um, so there's probably a lot of people who become lawyers who already had that interest in English and in books. So I, I think that will be part of it. But I think also because we play with words and deal with um, deal with sentences, on a you, you get trained as a writer even though you're working in, in um, working as a lawyer. So I think that seems to help.
1: I love the part where in, in the book where Richie, who um, is one of the characters, and um, he, go, he does a mock exam, and the mock exam is actually marked by another teacher, not his actual teacher, and he only gets 40%, and, and he goes to his actual teacher and said, I don't understand why I only got 40% for this. And, and so Twyford takes it to the teacher who's marked, and she said, I just don't like this style. That happened to you. That's a true story. That happened to me. So I, um,
2: yeah. So I, I was. I mean, I was a nerd at school. I studied hard, and I um, was never kind of at risk of failing papers. But this was a week before bursary. Um, and we were doing kind of a practice exam, kind of run through, uh, and it was being marked by the different English teacher who um, just kind of replicate exam situations. And so she told me a week before. Uh, bursary that I was going to fail English um, when I'd been kind of aiming for a, for an A. Um, and, yeah, so I was completely thrown by it. And I had actually a teacher who kind of reacted similar to how Twyford reacted, which was to say, no, don't worry, you'll be fine, and I'll, I'll help you out. Um, so I was really grateful for, for him for, for doing that. But, um, yeah, it was just, again, kind of that... When I was talking earlier about being this kind of sense of, like, it could all... Um, be destroyed very quickly. Like, just a teacher who knew the power that she had yeah. just said, no, nah, you're not going to make it. And it was, it was arbitrary. It was like, I don't like you yep. kind of thing. Have you ever met this teacher again? Um, Have you sent her a way...
1: lawyer's letter? Or,
2: uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I needed to because I, I got 91 in oh. English, So. English. Um, <laughs> oh, you had the last laugh. <laughs> I had the last laugh. Sorry, it's a bit of a flex just then. But um, <laughs> it was... Um, then I, I served her in a bookshop um, when I worked in a bookshop um, the following year, but she was really awkward. Uh, in response oh Um, good but yeah I'm not sure maybe she has seen my books out there and now going oh no, oh, well, I won't like a style, so I won't read it. <laughs> I'm not going to buy one of those. You yeah. can't, write. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, you just mentioned there that, you know, you were, you were a nerd at school, you, know, you really wanted to succeed. And your parents were um, Sri Lankan Tamil refugees that came here. Were you three?
2: Um, they weren't refugees, but they... Uh, um, they, they came They came when I was three, yeah.
1: And you have talked, in, and Priya actually makes mention of it too, who's um, a, a, a Tamil in, in the book, but that there is a real pressure on you to succeed because of what your parents gave up for you. Yeah,
2: yeah I, think, and I think this is common amongst many kind of immigrant kids is that your, your parents have kind of done something purely for the kids. Um, like, it's not necessarily for their benefit. They'll just kind of do what they can to get through for the next 20 years. It's entirely... There, there is that pressure on you to kind of justify the, the sacrifice of moving somewhere. But when they moved here in '86, they didn't know anybody in New Zealand. Um, there wasn't a Tamil community at that point because the Immigration Act in 87, only that, that was, it was at that point when more kind of Sri Lankans kind of started coming to New Zealand. Mm. So they didn't actually know anyone when they, they moved here. Um, so it was purely for us, purely for the sense that we'd have better opportunities here. Um, so you've got siblings? I've got a younger sister. Younger um,
1: sister.
2: So that kind of, there was always that kind of sense of, and I think it's common across the Tamil community for kids to kind of, right, you'll go to university and there's all this chat about, oh, my son's a doctor or my daughter's a doctor or there's that real kind of... Um, pride. Pride in the professions and, and, mm. and that pressure, that, that expectation or assumption that you go to university, actually. It's not even... If you don't go to university, it's, it's noteworthy. Um,
1: what pressure that is on you as young people. Though. Yeah,
2: I mean, I was really lucky in that, and my parents were pretty laissez-faire and they were really good at that, in that space. They never actually put any pressure on me to, to do anything um, or, or my sister. Um, but... Um, I also kind of knew that there was nothing really they, had, they didn't really need to worry, whereas I knew people in my kind of class who weren't kind of um, as studious as me really struggled because their parents would be like comparing them to me or kind of saying, well, why aren't you, going to, why aren't you becoming a, an accountant or a doctor or, mm. or a lawyer or anything like that? So, um, But you also internalised it as well, because I went to law school despite wanting to do something creative, um, and I, I still am a lawyer despite also kind of doing something creative. Um, yeah. And... It is something that you kind of um, buy into, I
1: guess, as a kid. Yeah. What about the extracurricular activities? Was there a lot of pressure on you for you know to play sport or to learn a musical instrument or or anything like that as
2: well? I, I kind of did it myself. I, I'm I'm kind of one of those weird people in that I'm not very competitive, but I also don't want to do anything badly. Um, so <laughs> I, I so when I played sport, I played sport as well as I could, and when I played saxophone um, throughout school, and so I kind of played music as well as I could, and I um, threw myself into as much as, I, much as I could. I was a small year group, so there were about 40 of us, so we all wanted to kind of um, do as much as we can and kind of Ooh. represent the school and, and in the best ways that we could, so I, was, um, I, I put pressure on myself rather than... Then having it placed on you. Having it placed on me, and then, but the only pressure I got was when I turned 15 for my parents to tell me to get a driver's licence, so they didn't have to drive me anymore.
1: <laughs> Did you pass?
2: Quickly. <laughs> uh, I ran a red light on my restricted test, which was not a good start. Ooh, but then yeah, yeah. after that point, I, I got there.
1: Can we just briefly take a look at Sodden downstream? Because this is another, um, the last, the novel before Spriggs. Um, it's also for sale out, out there. Um, this is the first time you really have gone into the Sri Lankan and the, and, and the Tamil, and, and you've um, got Sita, who's the, the major character of this book. Um, there's quite a lot of your family and of you in southern downstream, isn't there? There is, yeah. Um, so I was born in 1983
2: and, in, in Sri Lanka and 1983 is the kind of um, turning point in Sri Lankan history or in modern Sri Lankan history. So that's when the civil war kind of really ramped up and in particular in July 1983 there was um, essentially um, a pogrom in which um, thousands of Tamils were just, were massacred in a, in a space of a couple of days in Colombo and it was in reaction to um, the killing of Sinhalese soldiers by um, by Tamil tigers up in, up in the north and in response the government just handed out electoral information to mobs as to where all the Tamils lived uh, and so mobs came, came to to the houses um, and it came to, um, to our house so my dad was overseas at the time he had already moved and mum stayed behind while she was pregnant with me because her parents were sick so she was waiting for, for them to pass away before um, she would go join my dad um, and so a mob showed up at our house in '83, in and we were saved because our next door neighbours were Muslim, and they hid us in their um, their back room. And the the patriot kind of stood at the gate and said, um, "There's no tumbles here; they have all gone," um, and and told the kind of mob to to leave. Um, so that kind of that was kind of a pretty formative experience, obviously for for mum, but also like it kind of was something that she kind of talked about loosely, but not something that she really kind of um, delved d- mm. uh, too deep into. Um, and But also because I never saw my dad for my first year and a half because we actually couldn't leave after that point uh, with the Civil War. And so mum was there raising a kid in, in the midst of that Civil War while her parents were, were dying. So that formed the kind of, I guess, the, the narrative structure of Sodom. Um, and then mum was also a, a, a zero-hours worker, so um, the kind of exploitation from a employer mm-hmm. perspective
1: kind of was something that I was also touching on. Did you talk to them when you were writing this? Did you get information from them or memories or other tumbles that had, had fled Sri Lanka? Um, a little bit, but also one of the things I was doing in this book is there's also
2: a disparity between the people who got out in the 80s, like my family, which is who were largely middle class and largely able to kind of afford to, to leave Sri Lanka versus the people who got left behind and in 2009 in particular the civil war, that was when the civil war kind of ended mm. uh, in, the, in the north uh, and there was some utterly horrendous massacres, I think up to 100,000 people mm. were killed in the, in the space of a few months towards, towards the end and it was tumble's kind of hemmed in, in a particular area and just, just essentially massacred um, and so the characters in this book are people who went through that so I could never really claim that Horror or that experience, um, so that's not something that I, it was part of my history. So I, I had to do quite a lot of research and read a lot of testimony from people in two thousand and nine in order to to write CETA's section. And there's a, there's a stream of conscious na- consciousness narrative in the um, kind of two thirds into Solomon downstream, which is based on the kind of narratives that I um, that you read that I'd read
1: and, and, and heard. So. Because there's always that cultural appropriation, isn't there, that, that issue of taking somebody else's story that you haven't lived in, and am I doing it justice? Or how did your parents and other tumours react to that? I don't know.
2: Um, my, my parents have never been demonstrative about anything, so I'll get like a, oh, it's good. Um, <laughs> uh, and when, um, when I didn't win the Ockermit with Sodom, the, my mum's reaction was like, oh, will you write again? Um, <laughs> like, it wasn't even like a there wasn't even anything like, um, there's no expectation, no kind of, I think they liked it, um, but again, they'll never tell me um, Mm. whether they did or not. Um, I don't know about Springs, actually, to be honest. Um, They haven't said all that much about it. Um, But, and I also don't know whether the the rest of the, like, because the Tamil community is diverse and different and and all that sort of stuff. And one of the things I'm really interested in ensuring is that I'm not the sole voice in this space, that I'm not the only Sri Lankan Tamil writing in New Zealand. Um, and that a diversity of voices from even within a group showcases the kind of diversity within um, kind of these kind of so-called essentialised groups. So uh, I don't know whether people like it. I hope they do. Uh, I hope at least at the very minimum the sense that these stories are kind of out there well, you must have
1: felt a sense of responsibility because, you know, being a yep. Sri Lankan Tamil and you're writing about this, which I think the, you'd be fair to say that the majority of New Zealanders don't even know this. This has happened, yep. and the trauma. And we all know about what's happened in Uganda and in other countries in Cambodia and in and in Europe, but this is something right on our doorstep, almost that we don't know. So there is a responsibility that, for you, I imagine, yep. to get this right.
2: Yeah, I think so, and. That real sense of knowing that i 'm the first Sri Lankan novelist as far as I know in New Zealand, um, so making sure that I a, pay tribute to kind of some of the kind of reasons why i 'm here I mean the Civil war is the reason why i 'm in New mm. Zealand um, while also making sure that i 'm creating space that other stories can be told with, about the civil war and, and how traumatic it, it has been because it 's the reason for the diaspora there 's a massive importance that the story gets told and, and you 're right that not many New Zealanders know about it, so mm. there 's that again that pressure from. Making sure that it's told in a way that does justice to the horror, while also um, m- making people kind of aware that yeah,
1: don't forget that this is this, yep. this has actually
2: happened. Uh, and the, I think New Zealand people had a little bit more of a sense because of the, a couple of cricket tours got affected yes, by yeah. um, by bombings. Um, but yeah, it's certainly something globally
1: people don't know much about. Well, um, one of the, the amazing things in Southern Downstream is when Cita's trying to get to her job, everybody that she comes across and they ask where she's from, oh, you know, Sri Lanka. They know one, cri- they know one person, it's a cricketer. So, um, and because you're such a cricket fan as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I um, have long promised to write a novel about cricket.
2: I um, haven't got there yet, um, so I just keep dropping in a few um, cricket references <laughs> where I can.
1: This is something completely bizarre, but I, you did do um, an essay on on the fact that when you were playing cricket and you thought you were going to be in the first 15, you nearly killed a guy, and it was um, during practice. But what really struck me was that it was that manly thing that you know nobody actually went and checked how he was. Can you can you reiterate that story? Because I think it yeah, fits in with Spriggs as
2: well. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It was a, a, a massive part of Spriggs. And actually, I should have brought that up mm. earlier. Um, so when I was, again, 15, It was, uh, I think it was two weeks after the party, so I had this kind of period of being weirdly notorious at my school. Um, at, so I was at cricket practice. I was on the cusp of the first 11. I, was a, uh, I wasn't a particularly fast bowler, but I... Um, was kind of an awkward fast bowler because of the left armour and you kind of deal with different angles. And I bowled a bouncer at a guy who was in my team um, at practice and he ducked into it and it hit him right, just there. Um, and he went, he went straight down, he got up, he seemed OK, he wandered back to, back to the main block to put an ice pack. Um, and then when we finished practice, we walked over and uh, a helicopter had shown up because he needed to be airlifted. Um, there were three police cars, two ambulances and a helicopter. Uh, and I'd fractured his skull. Uh, he um, was in a coma for two days. Um, and I had just kind of inflicted violence. And you deliberately bowl a bouncer. That's one of the kind of also awkward things. You don't accidentally bowl a bouncer. So I had bowled about a ball deliberately, which had, had this effect. Um, and I didn't know how to react afterwards. I didn't know how to like, make it up to him. I didn't know if I could make it up to him. Um, because how how do you um, and also how you, it's, it's unfair to put that kind of obligation on him to kind of say it's all right, don't worry about it when he has no reason to do so. Um, mm. He has no obligation to forgive me, um, and that kind of that kind of mindset came through in Spriggs, I think, in particular with with Richie um, and with a couple of boys. Like I really kind of thought about how do you make amends for, it. like, you, you've stuffed up, but how do you make amends, and can and you make good amends? good people do
1: bad things. I think yeah. that's something that you, you reiterate.
2: Yeah, in it. Um, that you can make a mistake, that uh, you can, that can have consequences for someone that are horrendous and mm. uh, uh, irreparable. Um, doesn't mean that the mistake didn't happen. Also doesn't mean that your goodness, therefore, means that what you did wasn't, wasn't awful either. Mm. And I think there's also often a tendency for people to say, oh, but this is a good person. Um, you can still be a good person and do something utterly horrendous Um, Mm. and uh, I still feel kind of awful about what I did to to this guy and because we were never friends either which also kind of made it um, slightly awkward Um, but he and I have kind of communicated since, Um, there was uh, an Australian cricketer who died about 8 years ago, Phil Hughes um, Mm. when he got hit in the the back, of the, the back of the neck actually and in the immediate aftermath I sent him an email and just said um, I can never actually properly acknowledge what I did to you, I'm really sorry um, I know that the Phil Hughes stuff will drag up a whole bunch of awful stuff for you uh, and he was really good in terms of response he's, he's now a surgeon so I, I feel like uh, at least I haven't uh, affected his
1: capac- capacity uh, his, yeah. his brain capacity but yeah he. Um, well there was that point I think that Richie's sister says, or Richie asks his sister well what do I do and she said just be a better person every day. Be a better person. And that's basically all you can do if you've done something bad. I think so. so. Yeah. 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 Well, time for questions. Has anybody got some questions for Branavan? Yes. I want to start with,
2: what was your original motivation to start writing?
1: To start writing. I
2: So originally wanted to be a musician, um, and then I wanted to be a filmmaker, uh, and I studied film at, at university. Um, and then I realised I didn't have the organisational chops to be a filmmaker Um, because one of the things about being a filmmaker is you have to be so organised and I'm the complete opposite uh, of being organised Uh, I'm really good with time but I'm not very good with um, with most other stuff (laughs) I'm a bit of a mess Um, so uh, but as part of the film degree I really enjoyed a script writing course and I actually was like oh maybe this is something that that I can do Um, and then I was writing for the University magazine and kind of doing that and I was like oh actually this is this is quite fun but becoming a novelist was actually a complete accident Um, I did this very chaotic trip through North and West Africa so I hitchhiked from Morocco to Ghana um, which and we got into all sorts of uh, stupid adventures that was with me me and two mates and uh, I turned that into a book um, and then was lucky enough to get published uh, thanks to a friend's ex-boyfriend who knew the publisher um, and and that's kind of how it happened, and then from there, I, I guess it became an novelist. But there was never any grand plan to become one. I just wanted to do something creative. Yes, <clears throat> there's a view that um, integrated schools uh, promote or help ameliorate behaviours versus single-sex
0: schools. And I was just wondering, if you took that view. I,
2: I think um, I can't. I, I, I think some of the research is potentially conflicting, but I can speak from my experiences of going to a boys' school, of how much of a bubble um, we were in and how little we knew. Um, and then when you go to university, you've got a whole bunch of like, holy shit, this is so different from um, what I what I knew or what I was aware of. And I can't imagine that being particularly healthy um, from a social interaction, from a uh, socialisation point of view. Um, I am uncomfortable with the idea that schools therefore integrate in order to kind of teach men how to be better People, Uh, that kind of puts the onus on um, the other students to kind of do that, um, do that work for them. Um, But I think if I had sons, I would probably send them to a a co-ed school. Um, I think, from based on my experience of what, how much of a, how much you kind of internalise a lot of these kind of toxic discourses, I think that would that is made worse, I think, in, in certain schools. And it might be, there might be some schools which do it much better than, um, than, my, than my school did. And my school wasn't bad. Uh, but I think um, certainly uh, there are some things that people need to, to think carefully of in, in, in terms of the, that space.
1: Yes? Hi.
0: I'm, I'm really interested that you work with law and law is known to be dog-eat-dog dog, and it's
2: had its first year of toxic masculinity Yep. Type yes. and I was just wondering how you, how you find that and whether you
0: think it's starting
1: to
2: change or, yeah. Yep. Um, I don't know if it's, I think it is starting to change, but there's still awful stuff happening, because as um, we've seen in the media recently and there's still the kind of toxic behaviours still, still present, um, and I think any institution where hierarchy is such a big thing that kind of, that often does still happen, so I think law has a, a massive way to go before um, it, it's a genuinely safe place for for minorities and, and for women, um, but I'm really lucky in the place I work in the sense that the team I work for are good people, I don't have that sense of competition or wanting to kind of one up or, or anything like that so from a personal perspective I'm treated really well, but I I'm also very conscious that that's not across the board. Um, so I certainly think lawyers have a, has, have a lot to do, uh, a lot of work to do, um, and I think particularly post Bailey report, I think um, l- lawyers in particular need to really kind of work harder at um, some of the kind of ingrained toxic behaviours. Um, and I'm certainly thinking about that in the context of Spriggs. like uh, the the, dis- the dialogue around law firms and their behaviour was uh, formed a, a key part of it. And I, I certainly don't let lawyers off the hook in the book.
1: Anyone else? Can I hold a second, please? Of course you can. In Anspreadshire,
2: I've taken really important current issues. <laughs> and I guess as a writer, you've got a whole spectrum of things that you could choose to write about before you begin. Meaning, the sort of what motivated you to tackle these big social issues? Yeah, I... I think, I mean, because writers can write whatever they want and I, um, I certainly am not someone who says there is one good writer and like someone who writes political writing is someone who's good or versus someone who refuses to engage with politics and therefore they're bad. I, I certainly don't believe that and I think you have to write whatever you're comfortable doing. Just what I am comfortable doing, though, is writing political stuff. I write because I want to understand the world um, and one of the big reasons why I choose a subject matter is I'm confused about something and I, I don't know why it is that it is and I so for me, I really wanted to get a sense of what are these power structures that, A, led th- something happened to me, but also kind of has kind of happened had this huge societal effect, and I really wanted to kind of look at that and understand it, and so that's why I chose this particular area. Um, and I do that with all my books, so it's like I want to understand something and therefore I will write it. Um, so, I mean, I admire people who can, who can tell a great story and just keep people entertained and happy at the end of it. I think that's an incredible skill. Um, I've just chosen something which is slightly different, which is to um, kind of figure out something and understand the kind of power structures behind a particular area.
1: Oh, Branovan thank you. This has been an amazing session. We've actually got another session tomorrow with um, with Becky, but I just really want to thank you for coming over and uh, thank you for your amazing books. And let's all put our hands together for Brendan oh. and I. There are books for sale out out the front. Um, Very hard to get hold of some of these, like particularly these two. So, you know, pick them up while you can, and um, Branavan will be happy to sign. Thank you you very much, guys.
0: That was Branavan Nana Lingham speaking to Tessa Nicholson at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to themalbarabookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do recommend it to friends and family. Thanks for listening.